0: This is case 26 from the uh, Eikigan Loku. Pai Chang sitting alone on Taishung Mountain. The case. The monk asked Pai Chang, what is the extraordinary affair? Chang said, sitting alone on Taishung Mountain. The monk, monk bowed. Chang thereupon hit him. The verse. In the realm of the patriarchs gallops the heavenly cult. Among expedients, rolling out and rolling up are not the same path. In a flash of lightning, of sparks struck from a stone, he retains the ability to change with circumstances. How laughable! A man comes to grab the tiger's whiskers. So, as you know, as some of you participated, last weekend we, some of us, went away to spring Sashin and experienced a few days of silence, lots of zazen. And sishins are a traditional part of training that expose us to a deeper layers of our beings. Which Layers that are not so easy to come by or encounter when we engage in everyday life affair. The way we live and function is is highly structured by societal unspoken codes and by our personal position within the family, workplace, or other daily activities, daily encounters. It's a little bit like pieces on a board game, where each piece has a specific color and shape, and is placed in an outline and designated area, based on the progress and the rules of the game, and also influenced by the position of the other pieces on the board. And in in most cases, many cases, these unspoken and spoken rules have so much influence on our thoughts, words, and actions that it becomes almost impossible for us to expand our view and see beyond the boundaries of the board game. And so to, to truly question the underlying forces that are responsible for the way we function we need to examine what is moving us. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I saying what I'm saying? Rather than explain, be, run quickly to the explanation, we have to stay with, closely with the examination. Stay with the question and keep it open. but as long as as our movement is dictated by these underlying forces or the unspoken rules of the board game we are bound to keep moving in the same ways and to keep recreating the same old patterns claiming we want to find a way out of them we want to free ourselves of them so we remain bound to a life in a dreamland where the known is revered and the unknown is feared. And the growing sense that we are actually acting as if in a dream is the arising force of bodhicitta which leads us to spiritual practice. But that's not enough. We have to know how to skillfully nurture this arising force, energies in us. We have to know how to not lose touch with it. How to not keep getting swept away by the dream. How to not think that it makes sense to act, to stay, to remain within the borders of the board game. And in Zen we call this nurturing the sacred fetus. To nurture the sacred fetus is to nurture Bodhicitta. The sacred fetus is of course the inherent potential for awakening. Inherit Buddha nature, as we call it. And this nurturing process occurs through constant work of attending to the different aspects of practice, as you've heard, as we hear a lot. So during intensive training events such as Zazenkais and Sashins, this work is accentuated. And we totally devote ourselves to caring for this fetus. All we do is about that. And we need to do this. We need to take the time to do this. As I mentioned in an email a few days ago, with every session that goes by, it becomes more clear to me why it is essential to participate in these events. I witness the impact it has on students, on participants. And also, I feel the increased clarity it provides in terms of discerning what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. It provides that clarity. Again, it's not enough because we have to learn how to move from that clarity. We have to learn how to Obeyed more so than obeying the rules of the board game. You know the Zen tradition has created and perfected a method of training that is designed to blur the lines between self and other, and to encourage us to get in touch, to trust, and to be moved by our true nature. And so the structure of a Sashin provides optimal conditions for this work. When we enter a Sashin, we step away from the established rules and let go of the, the need to maintain a separate self. Just let go of it for a little while. Take a break and experience how it feels like to attend to other aspects of our being. By maintaining silence, we don't give the self opportunities to use the math to assert itself. By remaining still for multiple zazen periods, we don't allow this self to use the body for its expression and then by moving together together all of us as one body we function in ways that are of benefit to all participants everybody takes part of in giving and receiving in supporting and in being supported. We practice oneness. We practice unity. We we practice functioning as one. Very much on the other side, or seems like on the other side of how how we function in everyday life as society. where we try to hold on to a gap, where we try to elevate ourselves over others, or we try to protect so we don't get below others. The way we do it in Sashin manifests in the way we chant, the way we work together to maintain the conducive environment that minimizes the leakage of samadhi, the leakage of concentration, the ability to focus on nurturing the sacred fetus. In fact, the the word together is a key element in the work of maintaining what we call the one body of sashin. But the question is, for us to examine, is that does this stand in opposition to the individuals that comprise of it? Is it this or that? So when we go to Sashin, we go into functioning as one body, and then do we step out of that back to functioning as separate individuals? Again, obeying the rules of the game. Maybe waiting for the next machine to experience that feeling. Or can we bridge that? Or is, it, is there anything to bridge? Are these two? In other words, is the one ever separated from the many? Or the many chopping up the one. Or does it only feel this way? Maybe when we go to Sishin, we are reminded that it only feels this way. There's only a sense of separateness. So how do we experience it? You know, we feel, Maybe we feel the need to talk, but we can't. The need to share, but we can't. We have to be quiet. They need to go do something else. Again, we can't because there is a schedule. So how do we feel when we cannot speak? Do we feel lonely? Sometimes we do. During the closing circle last Sunday, Mjogan mentioned the difference between the feelings of loneliness and actually being alone. She talked a little bit about how we can feel lonely even while being among other people. And how we can be alone without the arising feelings of loneliness. This disconnectedness, the, the state of disconnectedness, the state of being that reflects a contracted, static and rigid mind. That is vested in a separate sense of self. It's not wrong. it just shows us something. It's not bad to feel lonely. neither the good, no bad. It's just an indication which, if we take as an indication, allows us to go deeper, to examine, to learn something, and to deepen. To learn and to deepen, as we always do. So on the other hand, a sense of unconditional connectedness arises out of a mind that is fluid, unattached to sounds and forms. A mind that is awakened to a fundamental interconnectedness of all things. A mind that realizes it is all things it can never be a part of it's just not possible it's not something to believe in or trust or it's just not possible in actuality in a dream everything is possible of course you know dreams are funny like that So when we are deep in a dream, in a state of dreaming, it is convincing that there are gaps. That's what we have to snap out of and make sure that we don't fall back into. So this this mind, this mind that awakens to itself, is the mind that arises out of nurturing the sacred fetus. And this is the mind that shines forth when Pai Chang says, sitting alone, sitting alone, Tai Shring mountain. So, as we emerge out of a Sushi, what happens? Well, we know, those of us who have been doing it for some time, know that it's challenging because it feels like we want to go back. Maybe not to the uh, aches and pains, but we want to go back to this feeling of unity, feeling of supporting and being supported, nurturing and being nurtured. It's wonderful, it's incredible. But, but we don't need to go back to. We need to find ways to tap into it while functioning with other people who do not practice. And it's a challenge. What do we trust? If we truly trust, then you can be the last person on earth that practices and it won't bother you because you know what you are in tune with you know what you are obeying and it's clear so the fact that other people don't practice doesn't mean anything to that trust it means a lot to what happens and the way we function but it doesn't mean anything about a fundamental trust so then we are free to Practice at all times with all situations actually we are endowed with that freedom as well so when we emerge out of Sashin we have the responsibility to maintain the fluidity of our being and to give rise to a mind that sees humanity as one ocean And then sees the environment as the ground that supports it—a mind that is blind to discrimination, different kinds of blindness. This is the blindness of awakening. Where we, where we may be functioning in a dream but not dreaming so how do we give rise to a fluid and unattached mind when we function with others when we function with, or through challenges conflicts how do we express an all-encompassing mind through the use of our ears and our mouth? Buddha's last teaching, actually the last of the eight, uh, eight awarenesses, he spoke about this in relation to right speech. And he said, when you, monks, us, engage in various kinds of idle talk, your minds are disturbed. Although you have left home and became monks, although you've taken on a practice, you're still not liberated. Therefore, you must quickly abandon mind-disturbing idle talk. If you would like to attain the joy of the extinction of delusion, if you would like to wake up, you must first Simply extinguish the affliction of idle talk. This is what avoiding idle talk means. You should continually and single-mindedly strive to accomplish the way. Every Dharma in the world, whether active or non-active, is characterized by destructibility and unrest. Constant change. Nothing remains as is. Now please quiet, please keep quiet and say no more. Time passes on and I shall enter complete nirvana. This is my final ad- admonition. And actually that was his last teaching. The last thing he told us is to be quiet. 49 years of teaching. And the last thing he said is, You talk too much. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? Dogen said about this, having realization and being free from discrimination is what is called avoiding idle talk. To totally know the true form of all things is the same as being without idle talk. So to be in alignment with and speak from that one will not engage in idle talk. The the, the phrase idle talk refers to words that are self-serving, unskillful and potentially can create harm. refers to speech that is not in alignment with the three pure precepts. Creating harm, doing good, doing good for others. It's also referring to gossip. Speaking of others, others' errors and faults. Not elevating the self and blaming others. Not lying. Not deceiving. Basically means to cultivate clarity. As we do in, in intensive training periods and every time we get on the cushion and hopefully keep it going to cultivate clarity and then speak from an understanding of sitting alone sitting alone lying alone sitting alone standing alone walking alone because there's no one else Of course, alone. Because there's no gap. That is the extraordinary affair, isn't it? So that's why Dogen says, to totally know the true form of all things is the same as being alone, sorry, being without idle talk. To truly be alone, to truly be alone, is to be totally at one with everyone and everything. And also, to be everywhere, while being right here at this very moment. To recognize, not only that there is no other place I could be at, right now. To realize and recognize that I am everywhere, at the same time. That's where it gets difficult for the mind to to grasp it, the thinking mind to grasp. Because, well, I'm sitting here, but others are not sitting right now. Especially when it comes to practice. I'm practicing, they don't practice. Here's a gap. A conventional gap. Fundamentally, you have to examine. Is there? Talk. I think that avoiding idle talk is, is such an issue for us because it, is often, it often means to be quiet and say nothing. It means to say nothing quite often because many of the things we want to say are of idle nature. Not that important. And that seems to clash with a need to assert the self. What do you mean I I shouldn't say anything but I want to say something I want others to hear me I have something to say and if I'm not heard it's as if I don't exist maybe maybe you don't exist or at least not in the way you think. You no, know, Sometimes we should remain quiet because nothing needs to be said. And other times we should remain quiet because what we want to say is not in alignment with wisdom and can cause harm. Also, sometimes we want to speak because we want to create drama. Why? Why speak? From where do we speak? So we have to examine, we have to watch the words that so quickly come out, so willingly just flow out of the mouth, gush out at times. Shantideva said, when one intends to move or when one intends to speak, one should first examine one's own mind and then act appropriately with composure. When one sees one's mind to be attached or repulsed, then one should neither act nor speak, but remain still like a piece of wood. When my mind is condescending, sarcastic, full of conceit or arrogance, ridiculing, evasive, and deceitful. When it is inclined to boast, or when it is contemptuous of others, abusive and irritable, when then I should remain still like a piece of wood. When my mind is averse to the interest of others and seeks my own self-interest, or when it wishes to speak out of desire <clears throat> for an audience, it's a big one, when we want others to hear us, then I will remain still like a piece of wood when it is impatient, lazy, timid, disrespectful, evasive, excessively talkative, or biased in my own favor, then I will remain still like a piece of wood. Wonderful advice, isn't it? Think how many conflicts could be avoided if we only knew how to use discernment from perspective of unity. If we only knew how to decide when is the right time to open the mouth, when we should just breathe from the nose as we do in Zazen, we don't need to open the mouth. To remain still like a piece of wood is to not be moved by the senses and to direct the attention to unity and turn away from what the senses want us to look at. To direct our attention to the unity we turn towards when in Zazen It's always available. Well, the unity we, we experience when, function t- when we function together during Sashin. And it, it's challenging to not be reactive. It's not easy for us, obviously. You know, in the heat of the moment, the ability to turn towards unity seems completely unavailable. There's something more important right now, and I'm going to go back to it. I'm going to maybe I should take off my raccoon for a little while and fold it nicely, put it in the corner, do what I need to do, say what I need to say, and then I'm going to put it back on. I'm ready now because I feel complete. I've said my piece. Now they know how I feel, so I can return to being alone. I can return to being quiet until the next need arise which doesn't take that long actually but this ability is everybody has it and actually the more we practice the more available it becomes to us The rubber band, so to speak, that that connects us to the the practice that keeps us rooted in practice at the beginning for quite a while is very loose and we go very far from the practice and then we come back and we take a long time to go away from it and then to return to it, to that being alone, to the quiet, to the solitude, to clarity. And then little by little we tighten it up as the theme of our anger, tighten up the slack. We tighten it up, so we don't go so far. We learn to be more and more comfortable being quiet, being alone, resting in one, being at home all it is it's just being at home Well, where is that I want to take this opportunity also to say a few words about Pai Cheng and uh, historical significant role he played in the development of Zen in China he was a successor of Matsu and and a great-grandson in the Dharma of Huineng, the Sikhs' patriarch. He lived in practice about 200 years after Bodhidharma traveled from India to China. And Buddhism came to China with traditions that were developed in India and matched the culture and the, the climate in which it grew up in. And at that time, Buddhist monks did not work or cultivate the land and sustained themselves on begging and on whatever fruit and vegetables they came across while traveling or moving around. And so for several decades after Buddhism came to China, monks and Buddhist temples and monasteries kept up with that tradition and were sustained mostly through donations from followers and Home government and Pai Cheng felt that this way of practice is not skillful for training it does not reflect Bodhidharma's teachings and he's also burdening others so he decided to do something about that and he set up strict practical monastic rules and demanded his monks to take the responsibility for the needs of the Sangha and the monastery they lived in. In other words, to not rely on others. And in his book titled The Golden Age of Zen, John, John C.H. Wu writes, The most original feature of Pai Chang's monastic system lies in his introduction of the duty of working in the fields a duty which is required of all, including the abbot himself. Before Pai Chang's time, monks were not supposed to engage in productive labor. They depended for their livelihood entirely on alms begging. The Buddhists in India were originally forbidden to till the ground, lest in hoeing and plowing they might perhaps injure and kill the worms and insects. This system might have been workable in a tropical zone like India where one could possibly avert starvation by feeding on fruits and dates. The practical sense of Pai Chang revolted against the idea of exclusive dependence on begging for food. Why should able-bodied monk, monks live like parasites on the sweat and labor of lay people? So you required all these monks to spend a part of the day in reclaiming wasteland and in tilling the fields so they could live primarily on their own labor, only secondarily on alms begging. Furthermore, Pai Chang insisted that that the crops yielded should be subject to the assessment of taxes on an equal basis with those of lay that's radical. It was radical. Actually, he had a lot of criticism at that time. Not that he cared, but he did. have a lot of criticism and people that did not agree with him. And our practice today, or the way that our monasteries survive, is the same labor is essential, it's important of course for us here uh, we're not monastic so yes we have to sustain ourselves so it's obvious and in that we have to practice There's actually a, a nice story a famous story in Zen um, I think he, he lived Pai Chang lived I think he was 96 and as he was getting older maybe late 80s, early 90s. He was getting weaker and his, his, his students, monks, didn't want him to do work outside so they, they hid his tools because he didn't want to listen to them. So they just decided to hide them, the tools. and So he couldn't find the tools and then he went back to his room and stayed there and didn't come out to eat. Although they came, they begged him, come please eat, they brought the food to him. He said no. And then he said the famous quote, a day without work is a day without food. A day without work is a day without food. And that's the same for the practice. We have to nurture, we have to nourish it. That's the work. in this case, a monk came and asked what is the extraordinary affair and Chang said, sitting alone on Tai Hyung mountain that's the mountain where resided and then the monk, monk bowed Pai Chang hit him why? why would he do that? commentary says, observe how when they let go they both do so at once and then when they gather back They wipe away the tracks and obliterate traces. But say, when the monk bowed right then, what was his meaning? If you say it was good, then why and for what did Pai Chang hit him? If you say it was not good, what was wrong about his bowing? When you get here, you must be able to tell right from wrong, distinguish initiate from outsider, and stand on the summit of a thousand peaks to begin to understand. Now this monk wasn't new to the practice and he posed the question from the absolute. And so Pai Chang met him right on the same plane and said, sitting alone. He echoed. Or they echoed each other. And then, the monk made a bow from the relative, from the form. And so, Pai Chang again met him on the same plane and hit him. It's beautiful. Short corn. to the point. It doesn't get clearer than that. Cons are clear. We are so unclear. The mud is in our eyes. No, when we embody, embody, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Then shape shifting, shape shifting becomes as easy as scratching the nose shape-shifting constantly. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. What's the problem? What is lost? What is gained? Who is gaining? So what is the extraordinary affair? That's the question. That's the question that we should never Engage in verbal explanation, trying to clarify. That's the question that we need to embody and actualize. Coming out of a sashin into what we call everyday life. What is not extraordinary?